Welcome to the 93rd QuackCast, the real QuackCast. As I mentioned before, there are two posers out there with the same name, but mine's the real one. The first, the only, and the award-winning. Damn, I'm good. Don't forget that you can find links to my blogs, my podcasts, my books, my apps, my blood type, and my genealogy over at moremark.squarespace.com where my motto is, the world needs more Mark Chrislip. And even if you don't want to do that, as I always say, go to iTunes and write me glowing reviews. My fragile yet ravenous ego loves it. This is the 93rd QuackCast, and it's called Science, Evidence, and Guidelines. First, a disclaimer. I am a paid Medscape blogger and writer. And since they are in part supported by advertisements from the pharmaceutical companies, indirectly I am in the thrall of Big Pharma. And I am going to talk about Medscape in this particular QuackCast. Medscape Connect had a topic called, How Do You Feel About Evidence-Based Medicine? And various and sundry physicians wrote in in the comments to say how they felt about evidence-based medicine. And the surprising thing is, most people apparently didn't like evidence-based medicine. I wondered about the breakdown of the comments by both specialty and opinions about science-based medicine. So I read all 226 comments and I classified them by field and response. I classified each response as disapprove, approve, or nuanced. It was not obviously a legitimate survey and there is more than a little subjective interpretation in deciding how to classify the responses. I have no doubt that others would get different results. It was not a methodologically sound analysis. The discussion was also in the family medicine and primary care section, so it is unlikely to be representative of physicians as a whole, and probably not that of family practitioners and primary care physicians. I would bet, as in alternative medicine in general and of most topics, Shruggies predominate and are in the silent majority. Most people don't care. It's the cranky old farts who tend to be the most verbal, like me. Even though I belong to what one commenter referred to as the not-so-silent, quote, militant wing, end quote, of science-based medicine, I was surprised at the results. In total, of the 266 respondents, 72% disapproved of evidence-based medicine. Only 11% approved of evidence-based medicine and a whopping 17% had a nuanced response. It was actually the lack of nuance that surprised me. That docs should have issues with evidence-based medicine should be a given. I have issues with evidence-based medicine, but like democracy, I think it's superior to all the alternatives. And the inability to differentiate between Evidence-based medicine and the guidelines upon which they were based flabbered my gaster. I have never been able to come to grips with the concept that people who should know better don't appear to. Being perfect in myself, I am always taken aback when others are not perfect. There is an intellectual hierarchy in medicine, and at the top, of course, are infectious disease doctors. I will leave it to my listeners to rank the various specialties based upon their response to evidence-based medicine, since my referral base may be reading this and work is slow enough, thanks to all the quality initiatives that we have used to decrease hospital infections. But primary care docs, especially family practice docs, 
really disapproved of science-based medicine. 19 disapproved and only two approved. The other specialties which did not approve in large numbers of science-based medicine included psychiatry, neurology, general practice, and surgery, and my specialty, internal medicine. Most of the specialties were only represented by a couple of comments, so it's hard to say what you could about urology, for example. Besides, if I were to make a list of the intellectual powers of my colleagues, it would be based more on confirmation bias and the personality of the specialists I work with. I also work in an internist-dominated inpatient teaching hospital, so my bias is towards evidence and science since I have to be able to quote chapter and verse when I teach the residents. What makes me an expert in infectious diseases is partly experience, which has made me a better diagnostician every year I am in practice, and my ultimately futile attempt to master the infectious disease literature, which makes me better at choosing a treatment. But does the greatly extolled, at least for the evidence-based medicine naysayers experience, make me better at treatment? Most of the people who objected to science-based medicine said their experience was the deciding factor in treating patients, not what the literature said. I don't know for sure, but I doubt strongly that experience has made me better at treating patients and knowing what the best therapy is. However, you never really know. Some examples. Propionic bacterium is an anaerobic bacteria that causes the occasional postoperative back infection and artificial joint infection. It is an odd bug. Being such a part of the normal flora, it can fester for years with little in the way of classic inflammatory signs or symptoms. It is resistant to metronidazole, the usual go-to drug for anaerobes. The treatment is usually high-dose penicillin, and I see maybe a case a year tops. So I have a smattering of cases over the years where penicillin did not appear to be effective, but when I changed to clindamycin for various and sundry reasons, the patient apparently improved rapidly. Perhaps they would have improved anyway. Most do. But as a result of my experience, I have this nagging, unsupported by the literature feeling that clindamycin is better for the treatment of propionobacterium acnes. And of course, I know that's not true. My feeling, of course, is crap. Or take MRSA. I never say MRSA. I hate saying MRSA. It's MRSA. From the published data, all the current treatment options, when compared to a beta-lactam like penicillin for the treatment of susceptible organisms, suggest that all the antibiotics for MRSA stink on ice. From the amount of data, i.e. the preponderance of information, the rank order, and rank it is, for treating MRSA is perhaps vancomycin is equal to daptomycin is equal to linazolid, which is probably better than the quinolone or Bactrim plus rifampin, and it's better than septeroline. For MRSA pneumonia, it would probably be linazolid is better than vancomycin is better than septeroline. But I think, however, in my Eldenari, that for the real order is septeroline is better than daptomycin is better than linazolid, which is probably equal to quinolone plus rifampin, and vancomycin is the least best drug for treating MRSA. 
Now, there are lots of caveats with that statement, depending on the specific staff and the organ infected, and I don't have any doubt that other infectious disease docs would rank the drugs differently. However, my experience and bias and interpretation of the literature can be conflicted depending on how I approach what I am reading and the patients I have treated in the past. Although someday I bet the literature will catch up with me. It always does. But if I say that septaroline is better than vancomycin, it's because usually I have changed someone from vancomycin to septaroline for lack of response or an allergic reaction to vancomycin, and they subsequently improved. But would they have improved anyway? That's the problem with experience in deciding about your therapeutic options. My experience does not provide good information for determining really what the best therapy is, and it is so easy to fool myself. It is an interesting challenge when treating a given individual since the study population done for the published literature may not be reflected in my particular patient. And then, especially, applying my bias and hubris becomes very tempting. I am very careful when I talk to house staff, residents and interns, and medical students, to differentiate my recommendations that are based on studies, those based upon extrapolation from known data, and those that are my opinion, since... The three most dangerous words in medicine are, in my experience. And I always tell the house staff that opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one and everyone stinks. It requires remarkable intellectual effort, however, to not give in to my bias and to come up with rationalizations to justify my opinion and do what I want anyway. Working in a teaching hospital does make that easier, since I have to make sure the residents know the right answer so they can pass their boards. And someday they will be in practice, having to make the decisions without the support of faculty, and have to make the right decisions that will benefit their patients as well. Right, of course, is in quotes, as a recognition that medicine changes, and I get to bore and amuse the residents about what we did in my day, back when every PVC received lidocaine, asthma was treated with aminophilin, we had no CAT scans, and I wore an onion on my belt, as was the style of the day. I have long noticed that many docs do not think like me, i.e., like an internist. And I was influenced years ago by an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine called Reflections on Internal Medicine and Family Practice by an FP doctor. Obviously, training for breadth will have a different emphasis than training for depth. A metropolitan internal medicine subspecialist needs a vastly different skill set than a small-town generalist, and that will be reflected in their training and approach to medicine. The money quotes from the article, quote, Internists are trained in classic deductive reasoning model of differential diagnosis. Family physicians are trained in a model of problem-solving on internal medicine services, but in practice, they often take a less structured and more empiric approach to clinical reason that is based on clinical epidemiology, end quote. And, quote, internists, especially those in academic medicine, may underestimate the degree of nonconformity and rebellion required of U.S. medical students who entered family practice in the 1970s and 1980s. It is these students who now fill the faculty ranks of family practice programs across the country. 
Nowhere is this nonconformity more evident than in the ambivalence with which family physicians have integrated themselves into academic practice. The importance of this counterculture mentality in the character of the family physician can best be understood by reading the works of Gail Stevens, which is considered classics in family medicine. An understanding of the culture of family practice will help to explain much of the independence and cynicism which so often seems to characterize the family physician, end quote. So with that as background, I guess I should not be surprised at the overwhelming antipathy revealed in the Medscape comments by those in the field of family practice and general practice, which were particularly dismissive of evidence, although they often erroneously confused evidence with guidelines. In my own field of infectious diseases, the guidelines have remarkably little evidence to back them up. Although in infectious diseases, at least we have the distinct advantage in treating individual patients, where it is often the purpose to eradicate large swaths of microbial life. I am glad there is no karma, or I would really dread payback in the next life. But outcomes in infectious diseases are often more binary than most specialties. Either I cured your infection, or I did not. Still, the guidelines in ID, as noted in the ID literature, are lousy with opinion instead of evidence. Quote, approximately one half of the recommendation in the current guidelines are supported by level three evidence, derived from expert opinion. Blech. Evidence from observational studies supports 31% of recommendation, whereas evidence based on more than one randomized clinical trial constitutes 16% of the recommendations. The IDSA guideline recommendations are primarily based on low-quality evidence derived from non-randomized studies or expert opinion, unquote. And they say that the IQ of a committee is the average IQ of the committee divided by the number of people on the committee, and it occasionally shows in the guidelines. Sometimes the advice is stupid, or at least brain-dead. The pneumonia guidelines suggest, with no data, quote, in general, switching to oral antibiotics, either the same agent as the intravenous antibiotic or the same drug class should be used, end quote. That is a simple and sure way to jack up costs and breed resistance. Not that my opinion is necessarily better, but I don't think it's any worse than the committees that came up with that guideline, and my IQ is divided by one. But most patients with uncomplicated pneumonia who respond promptly probably require no more than amoxicillin or doxycycline at discharge. Oh, I can pepper that statement with several pages of caveats. It still amazes me that for a common infection like pneumonia, we really do not know the optimal treatment. Quote, most patients with community-acquired pneumonia have been treated for 7 to 10 days or longer, but few well-controlled studies have evaluated the optimal duration of therapy for patients with community-acquired pneumonia managed in or out of the hospital. Data available on short course treatments do not suggest any difference in outcome with appropriate therapy in either inpatients or outpatients. Or take the acute bacterial rhinosinusitis guidelines, i.e., how do you treat an infected sinus? Quote, high dose of moxicillin clavulanate is recommended for children and adults from geographic areas with high endemic rates, greater than 10%, invasive penicillin non-susceptible streptococcus pneumoniae. Hmm. 
high dose amoxicillin should be enough to treat penicillin non-susceptible strep pneumoniae, at least for a relatively trivial infection like sinusitis. But here's the deal. Strep pneumoniae don't make a beta-lactamase. It's an enzyme that degrades amoxicillin, which they point out in the text. For strep pneumoniae, clavulonate, which inhibits the beta-lactamase, adds nothing to the treatment over amoxicillin alone except diarrhea and cost. And they recommend it not for the strep pneumoniae, but for the odd haemophilus influenza in the sinus of adults, which does make a beta-lactamase, as they mentioned. Quote, haemophilus influenza was isolated from 36% of patients with positive bacterial cultures consistent with sinusitis, compared with 38% for strep pneumoniae and 16% of Moraxella catarralis. Unfortunately, the rate of beta-lactamase producing haemophilus influenza was not reported in the study, end quote. Hmm. So, they then, after this convoluted argument, conclude, thus, the recommendation of amoxicillin clavulonate in adult patients with sinusitis is primarily based on in vitro susceptibility data and the current prevalence rates of beta-lactamase production among haemophilus influenza. Why do they even bother? We have crappy data and no good information and bad reasoning, or at least convoluted reasoning, but we're going to write guidelines anyway. Seriously, what's the point? Societies seem obligated to make guidelines even when they don't know what the guidelines should be. This is not confidence-inspiring, although I understand the reasoning. It is awkward at best. You want to give more amoxicillin if you have high endemic rates of invasive penicillin non-susceptible strep pneumoniae, but due to the potential for homophilus influenza, you want amoxicillin clavulonate instead. I suspect, however, the commenters on Medscape who complain about guidelines are not doing so from a fine reading of the content in the context of an understanding of the medical literature, but more a rebellion against being told what to do by the man insurance companies, and those smarty-pants academics. I share their concerns, but for different reasons. And then there is science and evidence, and often I do not know what to do with the results, even when impressive. Recently, the New England Journal of Medicine published an article that demonstrated that the antibiotic azithromycin, when compared to other agents, was associated with excess deaths. The overall increase in deaths was small, but not if you were one of those in the excess. Quote, relative to amoxicillin, azithromycin was associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular death, and death from any cause, with an estimated 47 additional cardiovascular deaths per million courses of antibiotic. Patients in the highest risk of cardiovascular disease had an estimated 245 additional cardiovascular deaths per million courses. Not a lot, again, unless you happen to be the poor schlub who dies. The paper is really good evidence-based medicine, but it's an epidemiologic study. So how do I approach such a study? First, I will admit it's a gut check. Was I surprised at the headline? No. Quinolones, azoles, and macrolides all have known effects on the cardiac conduction system so they could kill people. This is in contrast to a recent report that quinolones, such as Cipro and moxifloxacin, 
were associated with an increase in retinal detachment. While quinolones are known to affect connective tissue, I'm a little more skeptical about this one. That's one I would like to see confirmed. But the azithromycin study, I am more likely to take to heart. The problem with the study is that while it demonstrated those with cardiac problems were more likely to have an adverse reaction, the main indication for the antibiotics was sinusitis or bronchitis. So, will the same effects happen with other infections? What's the risk of the drug versus the benefit of the drug? For example, in both sepsis and pneumonia, receiving a macrolide is associated with increased survival compared to those who do not receive a macrolide. And also, with acute pneumonia, where there is survival benefit from a macrolide, it is one of the many infections with increased vascular events, including arrhythmias and heart attacks. Since macrolides are also part of the guidelines for the treatment of pneumonia, are we seeing more deaths from the drug or the infections for which it's being used? That being said, I am much less likely to give azithromycin for trivial infections like sinusitis and bronchitis than I would for life-threatening infections such as hospitalized pneumonia and sepsis. But what do you do if you think your experience trumps data and evidence? The risk was increased from 47 to 245 per million doses of azithromycin given, making it unlikely that any experienced provider with maybe three to 6,000 patients in their panel will ever be likely to inadvertently kill a patient with azithromycin. Yeah, in my experience, I never killed a patient with azithromycin, at least not that you know of. And that, in the end, is the problem with experience-based medicine. Experience will always be insufficient to recognize rare yet important complications or beneficial effects of therapies applied to populations such as treating hypertension. Science-based medicine should be the basis of medicine, unfortunately or fortunately, its application will always require a bit of the art of medicine. But being against evidence-based and science-based medicine is in part like being against fresh water and clean air. It should be the starting point in the practice of medicine. And a good physician always recognizes the ability for him or herself to be fooled by experience.